Hi, everyone. Welcome to the NFL Films Podcast. Before we start the show, just a quick note. This episode, which will focus on Eddie George, A Football Life, was actually recorded in the middle of the regular season around Thanksgiving. And folks, this is a good one. We talked with former Heisman Trophy winner and Tennessee Titans running back Eddie George. We took a deep dive into the creative mind of Eric Powers, the film's director. And of course, we spoke with the guru himself, Greg Cosell. You can watch the re-air of Eddie George of Football Life this week, Thursday, February 22nd at 9 p.m. Eastern on the NFL Network. And also watch it on demand on NFL Game Pass at gamepass.nfl.com. That's February 22nd, 9 p.m. Eastern on the NFL Network, and also on demand on NFL Game Pass at gamepass.nfl.com. And if you enjoy this episode, check your feed next Wednesday for Jim Kelly, a Football Life's podcast, featuring an exclusive interview with the Hall of Fame quarterback, Jim Kelly. All right, folks, enjoy the show. Today on the NFL Films Podcast... Eddie George, A Football Life. We will delve deep into the film and its making with director and producer Eric Powers. We'll be joined by perhaps the only Heisman Trophy winner to star in a Broadway production, a musical production of Chicago. Eddie George himself will be with us. We will also, of course, get the unique in-depth perspectives of noted NFL Films guru Greg Cosell. I'm Paul Camerata. I'm Keith Cosro. Welcome to the NFL Films Podcast. Paul. Yes, Keith. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Let's get right to it. What is um, the most fun kind of uh, a football life to do? We've done a lot of them. We're on our seventh season of a football life. We're, we're close to the finish of it. Is that, is that an opinion question? You're asking me my opinion? or I think it's fact. Uh, there's a great consensus that the running back position is perhaps the most fun type of football life to produce. Correct. Almost without a doubt. There, if you get to do a running back football life, you get the best footage by far. That's true. You get usually an unbelievable college montage. You get... A, a great career arc because they burst onto the scene usually, they struggle, they have rivals. Every running back has a decline that's a little bit sad and a finish. But a running back football life has always been, always been, we've done more than 15 of them. And um, this season's is Eddie George. Well, Eddie George is, he's in, in a unique position because he's a singular running back for a lot of reasons on the field and off the field. He might suffer from the, uh, hmm, what's the word? It's not a stigma. He never won a Super Bowl, okay? He might not be in the Hall of Fame. So people don't, he's one of those guys, people don't knee-jerk yell out Eddie George when the conversation comes yeah. up about. Well, this is what we do. Like, you're not, it's like you didn't have a great career if, you, if you're not, like, is he a Hall of Famer? You know, I don't know if he's a Hall of Famer, but I know that Eddie George was great, and it was great to watch him, and he was, like, one of the best players in the NFL for almost a decade. And he's unique. I think his running style, I think his body type at the running back position, certainly what he encountered off the field made for uh, great fodder for exploration uh, for an episode of A Football Life. So that's why... Noted NFL film. Oh, he can't be noted. There's only one noted guy. Sorry. 
NFL Film Zone producer and director Eric Powers joins us today to dive into Eddie's story. Welcome, Eric. Who is the noted NFL Films producer? We said it's Greg Cosell, noted oh. noted NFL Films guru. Guru. Greg Cosell. Oh, okay. okay. Would you disagree? I mean, he is noted. <laughs> Some By would many. say noted, depending By on many. where you're from. By many, he's noted. <laughs> I, I can't disagree Peter with King, that. among others, have noted. <laughs> yeah, but... You've had you've had HBO Emmy Award winning documentaries. We've got Ken Rogers running Hard Knocks. Like well, we those are other, good. Those are good things. But others, nobody's other. making notes of that though. There's one. It's like the belt. There's only one. <laughs> right? Yeah. Do you know that we almost had our own NFL Films belt? Really? Well, for Top 100, uh, the series we do for NFL Network, there was a, a great debate about whether to do a trophy or a belt. After like three years of it. It started to become a thing with players. They were like, they wanted to be, J.J. Watt was excited that he was voted number one by his peers and was like, is there a trophy? What, like, what's the deal? So there was like a whole debate before the next one. What should we do? And, and I, there was a groundswell to do a belt, which I think we should, I think there should have been a belt. You know, who spoke out against that? Nobody spoke out. Somebody said there, it has to be a trophy. It can't be a belt. Oh, the belt is outstanding. Yeah. It's a travesty. It should have been a belt. I did an interview at Larry King's house several years ago, and he had his trophy room with all the things that, from his different appearances, all his memorabilia. His most prized thing was an WWE championship belt. It would be anybody's most prized thing. If you get a belt, if you get a championship belt, there's no trophy that compares to a belt. I'd say almost every other sport, at one time or another, we've seen them emulate the celebration of having a belt, even if they don't have a belt. Like, the belt is the goal, universally sort of, of... Aaron Rodgers does it. Uh, who's the hockey, the hockey player? Dino Cicerelli from the Red Wings? Dino Cicerelli. Did he do the belt? I mean, the belt is something that everybody... Larry King has the belt. If I were an active NFL player who somehow got the top 100, number one, got the belt, I would wear it out for all the home games, for the intro with the pyrotechnics. Yes. Like, I don't have that image with a trophy. It's a one trophy. I'm sure it's cool. Eh. I think we should still switch to a belt. Oh, yeah. Retroactively, what? you have to give them out, too. If there was a belt for, like, the Greek god of NFL running backs, that belt would go to Eddie George, unquestionably. Nobody ever looked as cool running a football as Eddie George. Agree? Can We, we all agree on that, He right? pops off the screen. Everywhere. Ohio State. His Ohio State footage is awesome. So you got to do a full, a full Eddie George college segment. Yeah, we were able to do it justice without having to kind of use stills or workarounds. Like, we were able to show his most influential games, good and bad. And what do you think is the most interesting aspect of Eddie George at Ohio State? Well, the fact that he came into a team that already was an incredibly loaded running back room. I think think five of his teammates went on to play in the NFL, just, you know, in the running back depth chart. And the fact that he has this game freshman year, he's the goal line running back against Illinois, and he fumbles twice, and that's it. He's he's out of the rotation. He's not even getting practice snaps anymore. Like, a lot of guys would have transferred, transferred away. Guys who would have stayed, they would have gotten lost in the shuffle. There was already that much talent, and there's even more coming in through the door. And the fact that he was able to rebound from that and not only get playing time but to become a Heisman Trophy winner, like that, that sort of 
pressure and despondency, that would have crushed most people. Let's listen to Eddie's teammate, Raymond Harris, and his mother, Donna George, describe Eddie's freshman fumbles against Illinois. During the early 90s, Illinois had to be our number two rival. He fumbled on the goal line in a crucial moment. They were able to scoop that up and score. Of course, he was emotional about it, but it's fine. The team was still behind him. Coach was still behind him. Got into that position again. the game the fans are screaming at him we hate you Eddie you Eddie you suck he came up of the tunnel and I took him aside and I see tears in his eyes and I says go ahead and cry it out right now because after you cry it out all that hurt and disappointment that you have inside of you you're gonna walk out here you're gonna feel better about yourself because you're going to do better it was devastating. I was in the dining hall and one of my teammates said, don't drop your tray, big boy. I wasn't able to get a practice rep, let alone get to the game. You spent a lot of time around Eddie and, and it, the, the uh, perseverance and the um, focus that he has to get himself through different points of adversity in his life uh, comes up at a few times during the film, but as someone who interviewed him, who studied the footage, who absorbed it, what is it you think about this guy that enabled him to do that? I mean, if he's doing it at that young of an age, it seems to me there's something innate, some special stuff in him that helped him push through all these, because there are different kinds of crisis, but the bottom line was he figured out a way to get through it. How did he do that? Well, I don't know if you can credit the military school that he went to, or if you can say that he's the sort of person that he already had that innately in him, and that's how he was able to get through military school. But his mom ended up sending him away his sophomore year of high school. His grades were, I think he said he was a one-point something, that he just wasn't interested in classes and talking back, and he got sent to Fort Union Military Academy. And maybe he already had that discipline, maybe he learned it, but I think that was the defining point for him going forward of whatever adversity was going to come, being out in the middle of the country, abandoned away from his dream of using football to reunite his, his family and his dad getting off drugs. Like, that could have been the moment that he folded it in. But instead, I, I think it might just go back to if he was able to get through that, all the other obstacles in life are small by comparison. It seems like there was something artistic uh, in him in terms of how he, he viewed the world that, again, seems like it had to have been innate and then has, has since been cultivated by the, um, the, the interest that he's pursued. Yeah, I think that comes from his mother's genes, her nurturing. Like um, growing up, before his parents ended up separating, his dad was an absentee father and his mom, Donna, wanted to expose him to culture. So she enrolled him in ballet classes and she was the one who nurtured him creatively. And I think that he's found different forms, whether it be writing, acting, it's just ways to express himself. Is there not a, a whole uh, body of NFL players who took ballet out there? It seems like the, uh, Herschel. Lynn Swan, famously. Lynn Swan. Four-time Super Bowl champion, Lynn Swan. Oh, right, right, right. The, now, Eddie's expressiveness comes out 
famously on the field in the NFL. I would argue that Eddie George is the peak, the apotheosis of the pregame huddle. Ah, one word today. One word, and that's attitude. We got to play with attitude today. Let's come out on fire, and let's put it right in the mouth, and don't stop. It's ours to win. It's our time now. Play with a controlled rage and passion. A controlled rage. A controlled rage. That's an all-time. Who, who hasn't gone out to a turkey bowl and played with and played with controlled rage and passion? Who hasn't made that speech to themselves? Uh, I'd be terrified to be looking across the line of scrimmage from you on Thanksgiving morning. I'm looking forward to this year first turkey bowl ever with my kids. Nice. Yeah, very, very, it's exciting. But Eddie gave so many great pregame speeches that we had to stop using them. Like you would, it was like, oh, you, we can't, not another Eddie great pregame. So he was the best. He, he enunciated so well. And this was before he was an actor. There's only a, one other guy that I can think of who was that, as, as good at that as Eddie. Yes. And that would be Ray Lewis. Let's talk about interviewing Ray Lewis. Had you ever interviewed him before? This was my first time talking to him and really don't have a lot of experience talking with people about rivals. Like guys really love opening up about teammates, whether they be college, whether they be pros. I'm not really sure, like, are they going to be kind of withholding for praise? Are they going to be confrontational? If the rival got the other end of them, are they going to be generous with praise? Ray just lights up talking about Eddie. And one of the things that he said is, People ask me all the time if I missed the game, and he said, no, I don't because I gave the game everything that I had. But I'll tell you the one thing that I do miss, and that's looking into Eddie George's eyes across the line of scrimmage. It's like that's, that's the thing that he misses most about the game is those confrontations and that division rivalry. We've interviewed him a bunch. He's been in a lot of shows both about himself and other people. I don't ever remember him explaining with such candor such an anecdote as he did in the show where he talks about how he realized Eddie George uh, was better than him in terms of some of those points of attack confrontations and how he needed to change his body type, put on weight, that he wasn't equipped as he needed to be to go up against Eddie George. I thought it was a really cool moment. Well, it is something that I didn't know myself, and I didn't really think that a guy would gain 50 pounds for somebody else and completely go from being a speedy fly-around guy to, oh, now I'm going to be able to just thump you in the middle. And when he ended up talking about the two of them, just their confrontations in the hole, he was getting revved up. Like, he was stomping his foot. He was, like, he was, I think that he was getting back in his memory to being back on the field. And if we had a set of pads and a helmet right there, he, he would have run right out. Having done your homework and your research before that interview, did you expect Ray to be that um, magnanimous about Eddie and, and, and describe him the way he did? No, because they're division rivals. And, like, you know, there's that game where they ended up playing the Billick video on the Jumbotron and... I mean, the teams were so similar. Like Derek Mason was talking about it. It's like they were both built on similar style defenses with power running games, and Eddie and Ray were just the opposites of one another. And a lot of times, you know, opposites, they just... You, 
I would think that they would clash. And the fact that there is just that mutual respect between the two of them, I, it wasn't necessarily what I expected. There's more. Ray, when he came in the league, admired and almost looked up to Eddie. He viewed him as as the star, as a bigger star, and and someone that he was gonna almost have to dethrone. That was kind of how he f- he phrased it. Was he wanted what this guy had? That he had the successful college career. He had the fans. He had he had everything, and he was gonna have to work in order to take it from him. Here's Ray describing seeing Eddie at their first Pro Bowl they went to. We went to our first Pro Bowl together in 1997. And we're in Waikiki and we're at the hotel and this is where all the fans are at. And I walk up and of course we're Baltimore and nobody knows who the heck Baltimore is. We went two years in existence coming from Cleveland. And uh, we pulled up to the hotel and Eddie coming off the Heisman, going to Tennessee, and just having this incredible career so early, the people there was like swarming. Like, Eddie, sign this, take a picture. And I was pushed all the way to the back of the line. <laughs> and I found myself going and sitting over there at the bar, grabbing me a drink and saying, I'm just gonna wait for him. It started to show how popular this guy really was. Like, you know, how big he had become so fast, so fast. I mean, now of course he won the Heisman, so he already had his fan base, but to to have that type of impact on the league so quickly, you know, I knew from that moment that he would be a force to be reckoned with for a long, long time in this league. Yeah. It's remarkable praise. I mean, Ray Lewis is never second to anybody in any room, and he clearly was in awe uh, of Eddie and, and what he was in 1997. Eddie was the standard to which Ray aspired. That's uh, incredible to hear. It's funny. We just don't, we don't like time. I don't know that it's been as kind to Eddie George as to some other of his contemporaries. I totally agree. Uh, we, we talked about it a little bit when we talked about Jim Kelly. When you don't win the Super Bowl, people forget every other thing that, that you, you've done, which is so remarkable. And Eddie, having not won the Super Bowl, and he scored two touchdowns in that Super Bowl. He was great. They, they're one, one yard short of winning the Super Bowl. And he, he was their best player for a long time. They built an entire offense around him. And we'll talk to Greg Cosell later on in the show about that and, and, and what the Titans did with Eddie George, whether it could be done today and and where Eddie George fits in the pantheon of running backs. But first, let's talk to the man himself, Eddie George, who uh, has agreed to, to give us a call. Eddie. Yes, sir. Hey, this is Keith Cosro here at NFL Films, and I'm with Paul. Hello, Eddie. And and uh, Eric Powers, your producer of your football life. Okay, how you guys doing? Hey, Eric, how you doing, man? Hey, good to hear from you. Yeah, good to hear from you too, bro. Thank you for taking some time to join us on the NFL Films podcast, which uh, is we are celebrating uh, your football life episode. And uh, so, talk to you for a few minutes about that. But I we wanted to start. Um, with a, a couple 
more random questions, I think. A lot of this film is about your second career as an actor. And we've been wondering if you could play one role in any movie, what role would it be? Uh, probably James Bond. I think I was a big James Bond fan. What's your favorite Bond movie? What was it? The Moonraker. Moonraker. Moonraker, yeah. Roger, yeah, you're, Roger you're a Roger Moore guy. Yeah. Nice. And if someone could play you in the Eddie George movie, who would you want to play you? Probably Idris Elba. Who has also been mentioned as a future James Bond. Ah, <laughs> uh, you see how it correlates now? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the man who played Stringer Bell would certainly make a, a great Eddie George. I yeah. Total agreement here. <laughs> um, okay, so did you watch your your film? I did. I was. I was. Uh, I have to admit, I was a little nervous um, because to put you know an entire body of work, one's NFL life or football life, uh, in forty six minutes and ten seconds, you know, it's um, you're curious to see how it's done. But I, I thought it was done extremely well. I watched it with my youngest son, and um, and he was like, "Oh my God, that was." Excellent. <laughs> and my wife and, and, the, and my son, they, they love watching a football life. So um, it was cool. I, I thought it was really well done, um, the telling of the story from beginning, middle, end. Um, you know, just the contributors that uh, you guys both put in there with my teammates, Coach Cooper and Jeff Fisher, Ray Lewis, uh, Kevin Dyson, uh, Derek Mason, and uh, Brad Hopkins. I mean, it was just. It brought it really brought uh, up old emotions and um, and just have being in those moments and I guess it's capturing a lot of that and telling the story was was really really well done I thought I was really excited about it. Eddie, what were the challenges for you? You're a guy that I mean it's documented in the film. You you not only act but you appreciate the production of a, of a performance, the writing that goes into it, sort of the thinking out the story before it's portrayed. But those are portrayals. And in this this particular project, the way Eric designed it, you had to both kind of be a, uh, the subject of a documentary, kind of be transparent and candid, uh, and also be uh, actually part, you're actually acting uh, on, on stage to a certain degree. Talk about if you, or tell us about what the challenges of that were. Yeah, I think the, uh, like the challenges are, are just that. It's it's really um, getting into getting to the truth of the character and, and and finding out you know what he wants and what he's willing to do to get it and how he's going to get it and when you get it what do you do with it you know you ask yourself those questions as an actor when you're putting on a performance so it's making general assumptions it's really delving into the work the writing itself because the answers are there and you know, creating this a backstory for that person. So it's uh, really creating a whole human being, and you get so immersed into the process of that that it, it, it's like trying to unlock the jigsaw puzzle of a character, and you're trying to piece it together to figure out, you know, who this person is. Um, and whereas the documentary, you know, it's just being who I am, and and just telling the truth and 
and sharing the story and telling the story and paying homage to those that helped me achieve this, get to this point. It's interesting you mentioned the uh, the jigsaw puzzle aspect of, of acting because as documentary filmmakers, that's really how we approach making documentaries, even though they often seem chronological. You know, when, yeah. when Eric attacked this your story, I think he's got to kind of unlock it and figure out how to get to really the core of you. And the place he got that that was surprising to us that we hadn't really ever seen before in any pieces we'd done about you or anyone else had was your relationship with your father. Right. Right. We, that's, that, that's the essence of, of uh, you know, me playing the game of football. You know, came, it definitely came from him. I had other, you know, uh, influences like my uncle and uh, my coaches, but my father was the one that really um, inspired me to play the game of football. There's a bite late in the movie, and, and, and we'll play it play it for you now um, and, and then get your reaction to it, having, having seen how it all plays out, because it really felt like sort of the emotional heart of, of the film that Eric made. It was just me and him, and I guess he kind of sensed that I was coming toward the end. And he said to me, you know who the greatest running back I've ever seen play? And I'm saying, yeah, you know, Jim Brown. I say, nah, you. And this is the first time that we ever had a chance to pray together in my life. I started praying, and I got out a few words, and then I started to cry. And... I couldn't speak anymore because I was just, I guess, overjoyed. I, I guess I finally had, you know, my dad there for me for something. Just watching it and hearing it just brings up so many different emotions, you know, for me personally, to see the complete work. Um, and just to get, you know, the different perspectives of the other people, I mean, you could have a perspective of yourself, and you think that's accurate. But when you step outside of yourself and you hear what other people and other how other people view you, it's also interesting. But um, as far as my father goes, I think that was. I guess it was full circle for me. I guess it, it really brought um, a peace, brought a peace to me in saying, "Okay, I guess my." My football career is now complete. You know, I, I've heard those words you know, from my dad, and I'm comfortable now with that. You know, um, from hearing that. Eddie, there's that. In addition to that moment, for me, the other one of the more powerful sections of the film was when you and and Taj primarily are discussing the, your your confrontation and battle um, through Ambien. And I'm just curious, how did that portion of your life? How was it influenced? by what you had seen your dad struggle with? Uh, that was strong in the sense that I, I know that addictions, um, addictive behavior runs in my family, on, you know, on both sides. And I didn't want to walk down a path like that. You know, I never was into recreational drugs in high school, college, or professionally. And I didn't want that to be the gateway to something 
more serious. So I, I, instead of masking the problem, I had to tackle it head on and deal with whatever I was going through at that particular time and lay it out there and not self-medicate, but but talk about it, let it out, and be honest with it, be honest about it, and, and do it through the form of counseling. You know, it, sometimes we approach someone to, to do a film uh, to do, you know, are you ready to do your football life? And they'll say, no, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not ready for that. But to do what you did and with the honesty you gave to this project allows so other people to see your example and the things you went through. Um, and it, you know, other players who are transitioning from the end of their career, which is a big part of your story here, other, other players who have struggled or, or, you know, whatever issues or anyone in life who's struggled with anything. It's just a, you know, I guess it's just a, a lot of gratitude we have for anyone willing to open up and be as honest as you were in the, in the show. So we, we really appreciate that. I would also say it helps uh, anyone whose Heisman Trophy uh, sustains an injury. I think, and follow from your example, how, how did that thing get repaired? Did it get repaired? Are you still walking around yeah, with, it, with a fingerless Heisman Trophy? Yeah, it did get repaired. They sent me a new one. Wow. <laughs> I should have kept the old one. I should have kept that one with the broken finger. Good for them. That's a good re- return policy. Now, <laughs> w- one other person we have to ask you about, maybe the most interesting soundbite of this film is um, Ray Lewis's description of your relationship on the field. And, and w- let's give that a listen. We knew we were good. We go toe-to-toe with anybody. There was one team in particular, though, that gave us fits, and that was Baltimore. Baltimore. Oh, God. Eye contact was so crucial for us. I used to, like, look at people to see if, if, you, if you blink and if you wink and you shut them, Got you. That joke ain't never shut him. I saw another lion. If you know anything about the Serengeti, male lions and male lions, if they ain't with the same pride, you gotta dance. But you got the same set of skills, you know? So that's like, mm. So I... I guess the question there, Eddie, is um, lions in the Serengeti. Have you been to the Serengeti? Do you like nature movies? Did you view Did you view Ray as a lion? You know that's funny. Um, <laughs> his analogy is spot on. Though, we've always talked about about that. You know, we talked about nature. Talked about um, watching. Like I love Shark Week. You know, where. Uh, <laughs> And Shark Week, you know, we watched, I see the, the great whites breach the water. When the seals go across uh, during that time of year, they go across um, a certain bay and they hunt. Or I, I like watching uh, uh, nature as well, you know. So it's funny that he uses that as an analogy because at that particular time, that's, that's what it was. You know, it was two leaders going head-to-head, and we both knew that year, what it was about. And he definitely brought out the best in me. There's no doubt about it. They, they, listen, there are there's certain people um, in certain games that you have to prepare for differently. Like, you can prepare for a game physically and mentally. But against a guy like that, against Ray Lewis, 
you have to prepare spiritually. That's a totally different preparation. Like, no one is around me during the course of the week in Baltimore. It's quiet. I got, you know, I'm reading my scripture. I'm getting spiritually prepared because that's what it takes to be a competitor like that is spiritually because you're going to get tested physically. You're going to get tested emotionally. And the only way that you can carry it through, you've got to have a strong spirit. Um, we see a lot more running back by committee. Not many guys running the ball 350 times in a season like you did. Do you, two questions, I guess. Do you wish you, you got to play today? Might have been able to play a little longer. And, and question number two, is there a running back playing today who you admire? There are a couple of running backs that I admire. I like Ezekiel Elliott, of course. Uh, Leonard Fournette, I, I love his running style. Yeah. Uh, Derrick Henry reminds me of myself. Right. Okay, Kareem Hunt. There was somebody else I was looking it's at. It's a great rookie class. It is, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, Fournette. And, 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 yeah, Fournette, I, I really I think he's a grown man. I really think so do you wish you could play in this era where, where you, like in New Orleans, you've got Mark Ingram splitting carries with the rookie Kamara? Um, which probably not because the whole sharing of the, of the carry, the load. I, mean, like I come from the era where the running back position was held uh, high esteem and, and the offense ran through the running game. And guys like Emmitt Smith and Jerome Bettis, Curtis Martin, uh, Marshall Falk, they were all the focal point of the offense, and they touched the ball, you know, more than 60% of the time. So to have to split that up, it takes you, it takes you out of a rhythm. I'm, I'm more of a rhythm guy, and I'm not going to go in the game and rip off a 90-yard run and have eight carries for 160 yards. I'm going to have 34 carries, you know, for 160 or 150, you know, where my first 20 or, or 15 might be, for 30 yards, but then over time it opens up. So I'm more of a where you grind you out, play the mental game, the physical game, and where you out versus just being spotted. I've never been um, that that type of player where I can come in and out of the game because it takes me completely out of my rhythm. So, so the, the one other question we have to ask about your football life, um, what did we screw up? What did Eric get wrong, or what did what's not in there that you would like to see in there? Hmm. My acting coach, uh, she well, she unfortunately she passed away about three weeks ago. Oh, I hadn't heard that. It was it was yeah, it, it, it was sad, and she just really meant a lot to me in mm-hmm. that. I mean, you don't have I mean, this cut beautifully, but I would would have loved to have seen uh, something from her. Mm-hmm. I can give and share with her son um, or in memory of because she really was the uh, strong influence and a a guiding light for me once I left the game. I mean, that's where in her studio I was able to really open up and be honest and uh, be vulnerable and be willing to go places that I wouldn't have the courage to go places I wouldn't go. You know, she was the one that really gave me the, the, the... um, the confidence to sing and to go on Broadway and to be in Chicago. And, you know, I spent a lot of time um, at her place and just her being a good friend. And 
uh, she just really meant a lot to me, and, and she's really a part of that transition. So um, I don't know. I just I just felt like, you know, I would have loved to have seen something from her, and that if it if it if it if it, if it, if it makes sense in the whole story, I, I don't know. What That's was her, the only thing? What was her name, Eddie? Anna Maria. I'm so sorry for your loss, Eddie. And we'll uh, at, at at minimum we'll. Uh, Make sure we can do something special with uh, with a clip on 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 social media or, yeah, or something. Yeah, make sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would, I think, you know, I would appreciate that just to show her contribution to that time. All right, now we we've got to let you go at uh, in a minute. So um, we just wanted to thank you again for for taking part in this, for putting up with Eric Powers <laughs> um, through this <laughs> laborious process. But uh, thank you, Eric. Eric was great, man. Nah, listen, I, listen. I'm willing to do, you know, go through the, the the tedious process of getting it done because I want it to be right. You know, you have one shot to get it right, and this is something that you know I want to outlive me so my son's kids can see this and their kids' kids and and know, you know. So, no, I appreciate it, man. I really do. Thank you so much for taking a little extra time to talk to us today, and um, good luck in the uh, coming months and years with your second career. Thank you. Eddie George, the man himself. Paul, I have a bone to pick with you. Yes, what is it? Um, I thought I really had hit on something nice there with... You know, telling your story and being honest and open. And I think he was ready for a big answer, and you went right to the Heisman Trophy story. You don't you think— jumped all over it. And you don't think it's equally important to find out about a fingerless Heisman Trophy? Oh, that, yes. How many fingerless Heisman Trophies yes, are in the, the history of the Downtown Athletic Club? I, I don't even know if it's called that anymore. We both knew that we had to get out of, of the zone we were in. It was in a, We were in a darker place yeah. than you probably want to be on a call like that. Mm -hmm. And But I was trying to smoothly like, kind of bring us out of there with one last kind of— you know, let's acknowledge where we just have been, give you one last chance to say something, and then boom, hit him with the Heisman. I think it kind of jumped was, on it. It was a lot of Cosro, though. I think like there might have been a lot of words coming out of you that we needed to like get back well, to, we the, to the cut start. That. We could have cut some of that out. Yeah. What do you think, Powers? Yeah, you're the producer here. I'm starting to wonder why we don't have more interviews with two different directors. It seems like it goes really, really well. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? I didn't like that question that much. I'm going to ask my question. Creative by committee has a long and esteemed history. Powers, what, um, your thoughts, um, having heard Eddie, Eddie was very happy with his film. Yeah, he was positive about it. And this is the first time I've actually heard feedback from a subject before. So, oh, it's, it's great. My stomach is now rising back up through my body from just being all the way down on the floor. How much do you keep the subject sort of, you know, angel devil on your shoulder while you're editing and consider what his response might be to the creative choices that you're making? Do you, do you have to kind of compartmentalize from that or do you think, you know, Eddie's going to see this at some point? Well, I think it's kind of the idea that the subject of your film is the hero of the story. And if you are going to have the negative aspect, that's just to make the valley deeper so the peak looks even higher. So if anything negative does happen, hopefully it'll be balanced out by a redemption some point later in the story. That's a, something that comes up a lot, you know, in our position here, because 
we're NFL films. We're not, you know, necessarily an independent filmmaking company. We, we work pretty hard to have authenticity in these films. So yeah, you want to have the negative to make the, the valleys, make the peaks higher, but also, you know, people want to hear someone's real story, Mm -hmm. not just the, the fluff version of it. So to hear Eddie George recount the struggles he had after retiring was powerful for a number of reasons. Um, not only the one that I articulated so well to Eddie on the phone, but also because it, I think that it clearly shows that the film is is the authentic article. Well, Raymond Harris phrased it in a way that all NFL players go through it. It's, it's as if you go to undergrad and then grad school and everything, and you want to be a doctor, and you've spent decades just towards this goal. And then after three years, they tell you, okay, you're done being a doctor. Find another job. The emotional investment that you have and everything that you've worked for, it's going to get undercut, and there's not going to be much warning at all. And it's being cut out from a family, from a social structure, from your purpose in life. And how does someone adjust after that? Like, I had my own adjustment after college, and I didn't have anything like playing in the NFL. Let's hear Eddie uh, describe the depression he went through after retiring. You're going to hear from Eddie and his wife, Taj. I couldn't sleep at night sometimes because I just didn't know um, what tomorrow was going to bring. It was difficult to say, what am I waking up to? What can I be excited about tomorrow? You know, I used to enjoy walking in the locker room and getting the game plan and uh, breaking down film and getting with my teammates, practicing. The camaraderie, the laughter, the joy, the pain, the stories. All of that was gone. What do I create now? So that kept me up a lot, and I would take Ambien. Start off with one, one and a half, and two, and two and a half. I'd never seen Eddie in the years that we've been together addicted to anything but food and working out. So I never thought twice about him being um, attached to this Ambien. I never realized he was taking more than one or, or more and more to be able to sleep. And it was one night at my kitchen table, and I took uh, two Ambien's having the conversation and I wake up the next morning in my bed and she says to me you scared me last night because one minute we're talking and the next minute you passed out and said help me so my, my question coming out of that is at what point in, in the interviewing process and the filmmaking process in your relationship with Eddie were you going to get to that because it, you know, it's something you're aware of as a filmmaker, having studied his story, but it's also the not not the first thing you're going to ask a guy, right? No, the first phone call that we had with him, we broached it then because I thought that would be the arc of the film. Was he had his purpose for playing football and all, and then once that was gone, he ended up going to the, the press state, and then acting was what took him out of it. And if he hadn't agreed to open up about that, then we would have had to make a very different film. So that was the first time that we brought it up was then. And then in the actual interview, we probably went a little more chronologically. And then that was kind of towards the end of the interview. So he, so he, was, he let you know right away that he was open to talking about it? Yes. 
Did you ask the other subjects about that chapter of his life? Because I mean, obviously you, you interview them. Typically in these things, you interview people individually, including the subject. They're not together. They don't see each other's reactions until much later. Was that a topic, a potentially sensitive topic that you brought up with the other uh, folks in his life? Yeah, we talked with, I think, the majority of the other subjects who were relatively close to him. We brought it up with them. And I would say that the majority weren't aware of it until after the fact that Eddie hid it from himself. And he even from his, his closest family, he like his his wife saw the signs of it, but he didn't really talk about it until they had that incident that he shared in the film that I, I, he referred to it as kind of that football mentality that you're you're tough, you take it on on your own. And he eventually just realized that he needed help. Did he what was his reaction on that initial phone call? Was he receptive? Did you have to persuade him? He was receptive. Like he is very open about all sorts of things in his life that it takes a lot of strength to be comfortable and to share that with other people. The other thing, and we talked about it in, in the call with Eddie, is, is the story of, of him and his, and his dad. Did you approach that too before shooting, or is that something that, that evolved? That was something that evolved. Um, Eddie and, and his wife Taj, they wrote a relationship advice book. I think it was Married for Real that I got a copy of that, and he kind of alluded to the relationship with his father, and it was something that I had a few questions about, but I didn't know the full arc of their relationship. And then when we ended up doing his main interview, he just opened up a vein, and there were a number of things that I'd, I'd never seen before, and then we arranged it that for our second shoot when he came into the Philadelphia area, his dad was in the area, and we built a shoot where he visited his dad. What's their relationship today? Uh, well, Eddie no longer lives in the area, so he's only able to visit periodically. But we filmed him when he visited him for Father's Day this year. So, you know, let's talk about that scene. He, he goes and, and he visits his father um, very early. Uh, let's listen. This is Eddie and his father. And his father, as you will hear, can be hard to understand as, as a speaker. My father actually lived right around the corner of my grandmother. He wasn't um, in my life a lot. Loved my father, um, you know, I, I, I knew he had his, his, uh, his battles with addiction. Eddie, I didn't see none of this. Too busy chasing that stuff, man. They're watching highlights here of Eddie playing. Solution. Not the solution, but the reasons. And I know I can't find a good one because I tried every which way how to use successfully. There's no such thing. I wanted him desperately to, to get off of it. And I was hoping that if he could see me living out his dream or um, being successful as a football player, that he would get off of the drugs and, and be straight. <laughs> And I would go outside by myself and play in the front yard. I would put towels in my shoulders to mimic shoulder pads and just imagine the possibilities. We would go to these games every Friday night to watch Upper Dublin play. There would be another game going on called Free For All on the side of the bleachers. My father would come to the edge of the stands, look down and see what I was doing. He would say to me, boy, can you take it up the gut and down the right sideline? Do you have it in you, boy, to go all the way? 
So if you detect the sort of changes in Eddie's voice there, it's not uh, your ears playing tricks on you. Eddie kind of plays a couple different roles in this film. It's a really, really remarkable thing that uh, Eric created. I want to have him try and explain it because as if making a documentary in 44 minutes about a life uh, doesn't have his own its own challenges, Eric essentially created a stage play and nested it inside this documentary. Explain... Um, where it came from, how it unfolded, how it developed, and uh, if it came to fruition or as you envisioned. Tell us about that process. Well, kind of the, the nexus of it was in a previous interview, I'd seen that Eddie had referred to writing his own one-man show. And the original goal was if he had a script that was ready, that we would stage it for one night, and that would kind of be the backbone, and we would visit on different chapters of his life and intercut it with football footage. Um, when that wasn't going to be a possibility, moving on in another direction, ended up realizing, well, we don't need a full working play for that. We can kind of create those scenes ourselves. So when I did the main interview with him down in the Nashville area, I kind of had seven different scenes that I had in mind, and I kind of hit those hard with questions. And then using his answers, ended up writing scripts out of that. And then when we ended up filming in a theater, we kind of had it from moments in his life that there wouldn't exist video footage, but were very formative that we would be able to go to these scenes where he was almost like a ghost of Christmas past, watching younger versions of himself living through these moments that were really important as an experience. This thing is Eddie watching himself and explaining his own life to you. He's being reflective, but again, he's performing at the same time. It's just a really, I've never seen anything like it in, in the series, at least. I don't know, Keith, if there is. No, we have not. Uh had had one quite like this it fit well and eddie had done something like this previously on a thursday night football open that was really well produced by cbs where he was backstage and he gives a one it's a, it's a little bit modeled after birdman and the one take idea and he he gives a monologue and when we were when eric presented this idea to make the film we were initially a little bit apprehensive because we didn't want it to look like we were doing something somebody else already did so I think it's to Eric's credit that he found a totally different way to do it that even included Eddie's sons, right? Yeah, we had um, for two of the scenes, it was his younger son, Eric, was playing Eddie at military school on his first night that he was out there. And then the other one was the one that we had heard where he was playing in the front yard. And then his other son, Jair, is a junior at Vanderbilt. He ended up playing the college-age version of Eddie. And it was our uh, DP, Albie, who really figured out the framing and the idea of having Eddie in a lot of the shots in the foreground looking on at himself like, I'm not necessarily a visual person, and he kind of figured out how to make that work. Nice. Uh, these are not nine-to-five processes sometimes, and uh, I just wanted Eric, if you, tell us about your editing schedule, Eric, because it's not the most conventional as it relates to the other producers, but I think the proof is in the pudding uh, of, of how you work, so... How do you work? I don't believe that inspiration follows a schedule. So sometimes the best times at night are from 4 o'clock until 2 in the morning, that it's when the office is quiet, when the Internet isn't updating pages for distractions anymore, that that's when the entire world slows down and all of a sudden the footage starts talking to you. So I might not be the first car in the parking lot I might be the last one at night but oh, just as long as the cut is in the can I think it works out have you always worked this way yeah I think so and I get it from my mom she's the same way 
one thing we weren't able to get to on the on the phone with uh, Eddie was uh, Stephen Segal. Um, do you wish you'd been able to interview Stephen Segal, and why? Well, when Eddie was getting into acting, what we wanted to use as a demonstration for his progression as an artist was his starting point was kind of as Steven Seagal's right-hand man in this action movie, Into the Sun. And the hope was coming out of the Block 6 commercial break, we would have Eddie in a helicopter with Steven Seagal by his side. And I, this is a spoiler alert for a movie from 2005, but Eddie doesn't make it to the opening credits of the movie. So we were hoping to have Steven Seagal at the very least for this movie clip, but in 2016, he kind of threw in with Vladimir Putin and became a Russian citizen. And at last sight, he was giving a news interview with the Kremlin as a backdrop. And that made it a little bit tougher for us to clear the footage. And oddly enough, this wasn't the first time something like this has happened to me. Last year, we did a piece on Charlie Brown and Lucy pulling away the football. And the voice actor for that, who would have probably been six when it was originally recorded, is currently in prison on an assault charge that he compounded by verbally assaulting the judge in the courtroom. So we sometimes have our things that we want for footage, and we have things that, because of the legal system, we can't clear. Let's listen to Eddie talking about his experience acting with Steven Seagal. I enjoyed it. I mean, Steven's great. I mean, he was fantastic, but I was so bad, man. <laughs> it was so bad. It was so bad. Got blood in my mouth, and I'm acting like I'm dying. It, uh, I told him that... um well, if you go back to Louisiana, tell my mother I love her and I'll miss her gumbo. I mean, it was it was bad. <laughs> it was so bad. I want to watch it because it sounds horrible <laughs> and I need it. <laughs> so I can tape it and then I can send that out to all of our friends. I need that. If this is really a football life, this show is as good as you guys, you know, say it is. You guys will uncover some of that film, that footage, and we will play that <laughs> in some way, shape, or form. Or we don't play it and we just shoot it to me or someone else so we can then circulate that out. So that was former Ohio State Buckeye Raymond Harris, a teammate of Eddie George there uh, in search of that Steven Seagal clip. It did not make the show, uh, as we said. Uh, a clip that made the show that I don't know that I've ever seen is pregame Super Bowl 34, Eddie and Steve McNair. It's a sound camera in the uh, sort of the bowels of the stadium before they go out on the field. And what's funny about some of these shows is the Rams won that Super Bowl, spoiler alert. And so the pregame footage that most of the world gets to see from then forevermore is Rams pregame footage. So a great clip of Eddie and Steve McNair doesn't really get into circulation because the story ultimately that we tell over and over is typically not the Titans. It's almost uh, what we would call a lost treasure. It's one of these clips we dig up and it helps tell this story. Uh, in your research, when you talk about the footage talking to you, any other clips come up that you hadn't seen before, seeds of a future story. Um, I know that sometimes that's a way that uh, you find inspiration. Hmm. No, I can't think of anything from like a TV broadcast or whatever for this one. Like I've been looking for like through other TV broadcasts, I found a story or two. There was, I guess like for a future project, 
It was funny how everyone really opened up about the Music City Miracle and everyone's role in it. Like Jeff Fisher, Kevin Dyson, Derek Mason. They just went into the nitty gritty of like who was supposed to be, like it was, it was Mason's role, but he ended up getting injured and Dyson hadn't even practiced it. And then Fisher ended up saying that he was actually five yards in front of where he was supposed to be. So that's why it looked like he threw it forward. And they just got very into the X's and O's of it that I think we can do a future piece about. But because it was so far away from Eddie, we weren't able to include it in this story. Right. When we were watching rough cuts of the film, Eric had a much longer version in the first cut of the Music City Miracle. And like Eric said, we ended up cutting way back on it because it just kind of got you away from the core of Eddie's story. After, After all, he wasn't even on the field. But when you hear Eddie tell the story of the Music City Miracle here, you see just how theatrical and dramatic he is just instinctually. I, like, his description of it, it, it's very unusual. Ball goes straight up in the air, and I noticed Lorenzo Neal going to catch the football, and I'm saying, damn, we done really lost the game now. He's going to touch the ball, it was over. So he catches the football. I'm like, Lorenzo, just get on the ground. And he passes it to Frank. I said, oh, here we go. You know, what are we doing? Now we're going to throw it all over the field. I said, just get on one knee. Let's see what can happen. I like our chances with Steve Mack throwing it in the end zone for Hail Mary. And Frank is over there. I said, what the hell is Frank going to do? I mean, get down on the ground. So Frank turns around, throws a ladder across the field. Kevin Dyson catches it. I said, hmm, okay. (laughs) That's interesting. (laughs) And... All of a sudden, I see a form of blue jerseys form a wall and not one Buffalo Bill. I said, oh my God. I look around for any penalties to see if it was a lateral. Kevin sprints down the field unscathed. Everybody's going crazy. Man, I run on the field. I'm like, oh my God. I just witnessed something crazy happening. You know, what just happened? There aren't many players who tell stories in that way as we know you know we interview these guys quite a bit and that that's a storyteller looking back to how he was when he entered the league like you know we interviewed him as a rookie and then over the years and even as guys become more polished you don't see it to the degree that he was once he got into acting like after that point he becomes much more visually expressive his gestures just you know, it's not a talking head with him. Like, you're getting a full-bodied limbs and everything. Like, he's very expressive and engaging. How does that influence your part in putting a film like this together and portraying him? Does he does he sort of impart his will on it, or, or does he let you guide him into how you want your story to unfold? Well, I don't think that you guide the river. Like, you just follow where it goes. And Listen to that. We have I'm, try, I'm, I'm trying, trying to write that down. I'm trying to listen to it. We, so we have our narration sessions, and it's been Josh Charles for all our episodes of the series. And, you know, we got to line 30 with him, and we were done. And he thought that he was missing, you know, another half of the narration lines. But Eddie doesn't need help telling his story. You don't need that connective tissue because he's such a good storyteller. Rivaled only maybe by Ray Lewis. Uh... Exactly. It's amazing. These guys are like mirror images of each other in every way, as players, as rivals, and as like speakers and emoters, as like the human embodiment of football player from late era 20th century. 
the, the, from the, from the and, and turn of the millennium. We should, you know what? We should just listen to more of Ray Lewis talking about lions. Who wants to listen to more Ray talking about lions? Yes, please. For you to watch him from a television standpoint, you're saying to yourself like, "That's a that's a hell of a man right there. That's a nice built young man." But when you start to look in his eyes and realize that there's no give in him, there's no back down in him. And every lion responds to another lion. You know? Most lions, they wait for that response before they give you the approval. And to look deep in his eyes, yeah, he's 100% he's lying. Do you think that Ray views all players at, in like the animal kingdom in some hierarchy? Hmm. Or is everyone a lion on a football field? Because to make it to the NFL, you're you're basically at that level. There's no way everyone's a lion because there's the, he's the lion. Most of the rest of the gazelle, he's on the attack. The whole blinking thing, I think, bears that theory out. Right. Eddie's a lion. Right. Yeah. I'm... You have to dance. <laughs> right. There's other lions, other male lions in the pride. You dance. Well, I mean, but I would think that they, if they're the lions, then there's a lot of other guys out there that aren't lions. And what are they? Well, I'm thinking back to the Lion King, and you have whatever Timon and Pumbaa were. And has that ever been established that they're real animals? Oh well, yeah, one's a meerkat, and the other oh, right, one right. is some sort of like warthog. I thought. Right. Because he had a song when I was a young warthog. Right. I don't know who this is in the NFL, though. Maybe that's like Tony Saragusa, but he was the goose. Ken Stabler, Snake. Who else has an animal nickname? Anyone? Really veering off course. Yeah, let's here, get guys. back on the task. Uh, when we talk about his football footage as a running back, Eric, because I think, I think he, you know what I mean? It's like, it reminds me of when we watch the high school footage of one of these guys, and typically the guy who makes it to the NFL is like a foot taller and a lot bigger and wider than everyone else on the field in high school. I wouldn't say Eddie's bigger, but from the running, running back position, he, he is bigger than the typical running back. What were some things you noticed going through his, because I'm sure you went through mountains of his action footage. What jumped out to you about the way he played the game of football? I guess... I went through and we have our logging system where everything that, you know, someone's flagged of note is in the saver system. So I went through and I think it was like 56, 5,700 plays just like looking for patterns and all. And it's just, there's not a lot of wiggle, there's vision, and then there's just brute force. And the way that he described it in the film was he didn't care if he was getting two or three yards early in the game because he felt like that was an investment in the future, that in the fourth quarter it was a dividend, that that's when guys would be worn down, that that's when they might shy away from tackles, that's when he was going to break it. And in watching his footage, you can do that in college and high school because you are physically bigger than the other guys. But when you no longer have that and every collision is full force, like... I don't know how he played more than one or two years. Like, it's just incredible strength and endurance to be able to do that for a better part of a decade. Yeah, 12,000, over 10,000 rushing yards, almost 12,500-ish total yards, 78 touchdowns. I mean, he was productive as hell. The, the football talk, I think, has gotten, it's gotten us headed in the right direction here for uh, our next guest. Do you hear it, Paul? Is it why it is? It's the sound of noted NFL Films guru, 
Greg Cosell. Charging in. Yeah. You know what that means. Time for Greg Cosell. Welcome back to the podcast, Greg. Good to be with you guys. You watched Eddie George? I did. And we have Eric Powers here. You know what? I was just saying to Eric that I I loved the whole concept. I had no idea what to expect because, you know, every football life is different. And um, just the whole idea of the acting and... I feel like I should be reciting Shakespeare now as we're getting started here. You know, it's, He's an inspiring guy, yeah, know, Eddie George. I know, but I really like the show a lot. Eddie George, running back anachronism, could he exist anymore? Have we seen the last of the Eddie Georges? You know, as I was watching, and then obviously the football parts of the show, because there were so many really intriguing and interesting parts besides football, actually, which made it so enjoyable to watch— I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking, how would Eddie George be seen coming into the NFL draft in a time when, do we have feature backs in the NFL? Yes, uh, there's a few. But it's certainly not the way I think most teams now envision putting together an offense with someone who has to be a quote-unquote foundation back, someone that you start your offense with giving the ball to 20 times a week. And Kaz and I were talking about this this morning because when I was watching this weekend, the uh, the show, I was thinking to myself, I remember him carrying an awful lot for a long period of time. So I looked up the numbers, and they're staggering. I mean, and, and I didn't do the math, but Kaz told me that for, eight, I think, eight years, yeah. was it? So, yeah, I, I looked up on, on Pro Football Reference, 300, he averaged 340 carries a year for eight years. Emmett Smith averaged... 300 carries a year. This is the all-time leading rusher by a mile, is Emmett Smith. And part of the reason he got there, he averaged 300 carries a year or thereabouts, a little more, for the Cowboys for 13 years, which is completely ridiculous. Right. But 340 carries a year for eight years, I, there's, it's, it's off the charts. It's off the charts. So many of these teams now that run that much run out of what we call 11 personnel, meaning there's three wide receivers on the field. And so it's very much a spread-type look. Offensively, you're still spreading the field horizontally. The Eddie Georges of the world ran in tight spaces. You know, they ran with fullbacks, with multiple tight ends. It was a different mindset of how you play. But just the sheer number, 340 carries a year for eight years – could anybody even do that now? By the way, Eddie George didn't play 50 years ago. No, yeah, we're no. Ta- we're talking, I mean, I think his career ended in 05. It's mean, amazing how it's, much it's the 12 years ago, but, but it's not. No, it's, it's, not, you it's know like what? less than a generation You make ago. an interesting point. It's not like complete games in baseball. You can go back to the 70s with pitchers like Ferguson Jenkins, who threw 30 complete games, but that was in the 70s. That seems like a totally different era of baseball. You're, you're right, uh, Paul. It's, it's not... Uh, it's not going back 30 years. This was, he played, what was his first year in the league, 96, 97-ish? I think it was 96. Yeah, so he made it, part of that eight-year run was into the 2000s, so it's not that long ago. Here's, here's Eddie talking about his own running style, and then, and then we'll listen to Eddie's teammates describing Eddie's role in the Titans' offense. My dad was the one that exposed me to football. He loved runners that would not just make you miss, but 
just this imposed their will on you. They loved Jim Brown, loved Walter Payton. The heart that they played with, I wanted him to talk about me the same way. I grew up wanting to emulate a lot of those running backs to create my own style. He's like, like the fastest guy ever. It's just his tenacity. There's no way in the world that you are on first contact going to bring down 2-7. The approach in bringing down 80 George was have one guy get there, slow him down, and hope that the homies arrive. Did he average five yards, six yards a carry for you? No. He was a bulldozer. He was truly three yards in a cloud of dust. But came third and fourth quarter, that's when you start to see Eddie exert his will over the opposing tacklers. It was like um, a boxing match. First quarter, just, okay, two, three. But guess what? Those twos and threes, they're going to have to hurt you. And keep body blow. Keep taking going at the gas tank. Bang, bang. Not trying to knock you out yet, but just take away your will. Three quarters. And then the fourth quarter, you say, now it's time to break off the big runs. That, that was uh, Eddie, as well as his teammates, Derek Mason and Brad Hopkins. You know, it struck me listening to that is how the game has changed, though, in a short period of time, because I don't think that most people now think of the running game as attrition. I think they think of it as scheme. And even for guys who carry a lot, and there aren't that many, but I, I think even with those kinds of runners, it's not so much attrition. And, Kaz, you're obviously a Steelers fan. I don't think of Le'Veon Bell as a runner in terms of he's wearing you out. You don't want to tackle him. You know, I think it's more of, of a scheme thing today the way t for teams that run the ball a lot. They don't just run the ball now by saying, here we are, stop us. They run it. I would almost say tactically and strategically more so. Well, I mentioned earlier that we would hear his teammates describe Eddie's role in the offense. Let, because I think we should go a little deeper into that Jeff Fisher offense and 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 its own evolution and maybe the, the, the end of Jeff Fisher's career. We were going through such a change from identity-wise offensively that the run and shoot, which was the featured offense uh, before Eddie got there, you know, we're trying to figure out ways to do things with a tight end and have a big bruising back behind us really balance things out. And there wasn't a more perfect um, component to really add to that offense to be able to have that kind of diversity. I think that was Les Steckles. His, his actual philosophy was you can't go broke making a profit. So if you go 4-4-4, four, 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 you, you got a first down and you're just methodically going down the field. And Eddie was obviously the main component to that. Um, Eddie was, knew he was going to get the ball. Uh, depending on the complexity of the game, you know, anywhere from 20 to 30 times a night. Eddie was never known to run away from anybody. And I don't think he really wanted to run away from anybody. He would rather pound you in the ground for four quarters, 60 minutes. So Fisher and mentioned there Les Steckel, who was his offensive coordinator right. at the time, built this offense around this, this power back who they could just bludgeon you with. We're not seeing that today. No, not in a strict sense. I mean, you could argue maybe Jacksonville might be looking to do that to some degree. You're right. Uh, with Leonard Fournette. Um, You're right. With a couple of Bill Parcells tree 
yes. fl- football visionaries running uh, at the helm there. I wonder if it can't be a coincidence to the way Marone and Coughlin probably at least oh, were schooled. It's no coincidence because Fournette was the fourth pick in the draft. When you draft Leonard Fournette fourth, you have a plan. You're not drafting Leonard Fournette to be a piece of something. You're drafting Leonard Fournette to be the foundation. Well, right. Can Leonard Fournette be Leonard Fournette if he's getting 15, 12 to 15 carries no. a game and splitting the carries no. with somebody? No, I, not, not that kind of back. No. Because we had we had Eddie on the phone and asked him, would you want to play now and, and, and be like that? And maybe your career would be three, four years longer. He probably he said, said no. That's exactly right. Yeah. He said, no way. I wouldn't want to do that. No. And I'm sure Fournette would have no interest in that. Well, it's interesting. He was in a very unique situation, too, because Steve McNair got there in 95, the year before Eddie, but he didn't really start for a couple of years, as I recall. I don't think he became the full-time starter until maybe year three, so Eddie was already entrenched as the starting running back. And I think that went together well, because what you had is you had, obviously— Eddie, who was the foundation, and you had a young quarterback who was capable of making plays outside of structure. And I think those two things tend to work together reasonably well, because early in his career as a starter, Steve McNair was not a consistent pocket player. He became one, and I think he was an MVP one year with Peyton. Uh, they, they were co-MVPs, I believe, maybe 2003-ish, if memory serves me correctly. Um, so he developed into that, but I think when you have that bruiser, that, that foundation back, that bulldozer, and then you have a quarterback that can do the play-action game and then make some plays outside of structure, you can sustain your offense. Because the one thing about Eddie George is as good as he was, he was not a 4.8, 4.9 yards per, gar- per carry guy. He was really more of a 3.9, 4.1, 4.2 guy. Which is okay, right, in this context? Well, in, in that context, yes. The question becomes, as the game has changed, would that be seen as okay? I don't, I don't know if it would be. That's what makes this so fascinating. And as Paul said, even though it wasn't so long ago, I think there's been some, some reasonably fundamental changes in the game. You know, it's always easy to throw out cliches and say, well, it's still about blocking and tackling. But the tactics of the game have, have somewhat changed meaningfully. We're talking about a lot of things that have changed. There's another element in this film that's a thread throughout, and that's Eddie's rivalry with Ray Lewis. Oh, yeah. And what I'm wondering is, they, there's such a great portrait that Eric paints uh, about yep. the, the, one on, the importance of the one-on-one matchup. Is that something that's still important in today's game, or have we tactically and schematically taken the significance out of one guy beating another guy? Is that not as important as it once was when Eddie George and Ray Lewis were colliding with each other? I don't think it's quite as important because I don't think offenses are kind of set up that way. You know, obviously we're speaking about Eddie George, but it also makes you wonder about someone like Ray Lewis. Would he have been, and and it's easy to say because he's going to be a Hall of Famer, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, he would have. That's easy after the fact. But would Ray Lewis have been an every-down player playing against, you know, three wide receivers on every snap? You know, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, he was a really physical, intense, tough, between-the-tackles player. He certainly wasn't slow. It's not as if he was a plotting linebacker. But, you know, you wonder, would those kinds of matchups that happen inside the box in confined space, which is really what, what uh, Eric Show portrayed with Eddie and, and Ray Lewis, would do those matchups really exist today? Do we talk? I don't think, cause we talk about those kinds of matchups in today's NFL. I feel like receivers and DBs yeah. is like the only example yeah. I can think of. Well, what I was thinking about though is Ray saying that he had to gain a lot of weight once he saw Eddie and they met in right. person. Maybe if Ray came into the league now, 
he would just say, you know what, I'm going to play at 220, 225. You know, you want to be a fleet. Right, right. Guy, a, a middle linebacker who can cover a back or a tight end. No, you're exactly right. And, and that's a great point. That's why I, I was thinking about it. You don't really see, as Paul said, those kinds of matchups of a running back today. Now, we'll see where it goes with, with Leonard Fournette. But Eddie George was a finisher. To, he, was a, he was a contact back, which I, maybe Fournette becomes. Obviously, Adrian Peterson was a contact back in his prime. But I don't know how many of those guys are really out there or going to be coming into the league. I find it fascinating, too, because of his height. There's a logic to me that if you're going to run the way you just described, you'd be smaller, more compact, right, provide right. Uh, less surface area for the tackler to attack. He was the opposite of that. If he was coming out now, Paul, would people say he's too upright and not see him as a top 10, top 15 kind of draft choice and say, hey, great college back, too upright, can't run like that in the NFL? All right. Great stuff. Any other, Anything else about Eddie that, that jumped out at you while you're watching the film that, that we haven't touched on? To me, what really stood out about the film was sort of the dichotomy between Eddie as an actor and Eddie the football player because there was such, obviously, a physicality and a mental tenacity to him as a football player that you don't associate with acting, but I'm sure, like any profession, there obviously is a mental tenacity, but it's not. It just part of that seems like it's anathema. A big part of acting is you have to make yourself vulnerable. And if you're this invulnerable guy on the football right. field, how do you open your, open up yourself that way? But it's interesting you say that, Eric, because I think the one thing about football, and we say this always in our matchup room here at Films, the eye in the sky doesn't lie. So in some ways, as an athlete, you're always vulnerable. Because if you make a mistake and you're in the, the film room, you can't hide. You know, because everybody knows you made the mistake, so you, there's no excuses, so there is a certain vulnerability to that. No one likes to be pointed out as having made mistakes, but you can't hide from it because the mistake is right there on film. It's interesting. There's a preparation for performing in front of a, a more intimate audience than an actor does right. by having to perform in front of ten, and tens of thousands. And he's also used to being told that he's done something incorrectly and had to correct it, so, which is probably very interesting when you're starting out as an actor because... Obviously, he's not starting out at the top. He's starting out at the bottom, and he has to learn, so he's going to be corrected a lot, and he's used to that. He's not taking that person. I would imagine. I didn't spend time with him, but I imagine he's not taking that personally. Greg, in the matchup room, and now you can see uh, NFL matchup, the matchup show on ESPN, weekend mornings, starring and produced by Greg Cosell. Greg, does anyone in the matchup room watch footage with a controlled rage? Well, this particular week when I was watching the Cowboys left tackle, I think I had a little controlled rage. Very good. Very good. Follow Greg Cosell on Twitter, at Greg Cosell. Watch him on the NFL Matchup Show on ESPN. And listen to him here at the NFL Films Podcast. Thanks again, Greg, for stopping by. Another entertaining, informative conversation with Greg Cosell, breaking down Eddie George, diving into Eddie George of football life. Always great when he stops by. So, Eric, thanks for coming by. Um, what's your next football life uh, uh, vision? Do you have any? Do you have any, any that you're kicking around? Uh, I don't know the player yet, but I want to do one that's kind of Jumanji, where we custom make a board game. And... It's kind of like the story of the person's life, maybe playing with their kids. Interesting. So you're sort of developing the skin of the storytelling structure, maybe even before the, the subject comes to the fore. Yes. 
Dangerous. And I found a prop artist up in Long Island. Like, I got some ideas. That's a dangerous approach because you can run into big trouble if you force the subject to the structure. Mm-hmm. You have to find the right subject for that idea. Yeah. You might, might have to sit on I that might not idea. find him this season, right. but that's what I'm kicking around as an approach. Yeah. Like, you, you may have to sit on it for five years before yeah, you Yeah, but find I thought right it subject. would be more difficult if I had the idea to find the person afterwards. So I did the search first for, oh, how do you physically put this together? And now I've got it in my back pocket when it pops up. So. Awesome. Thank you, Steve Mosley, our engineer, Bennett Visseltier, our producer, Rich Owens, also our producer, and Eric Powers, the one and only. Congratulations on Eddie George of Football Life. Paul? Thanks to noted NFL Films guru Greg Cosell for stopping by again to the podcast diving in Eddie George with us. Always a pleasure to have him. You can follow us at NFL Films. Like us on Facebook. Find us on Instagram, YouTube, all your favorite social networks. From the home of America's football movies here in mighty Mount Laurel, New Jersey, this has been the NFL Films Podcast. I'm Paul. I'm Keith. Take care, everyone.